From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. Refusenik. It's a term that most of us would probably not be familiar with, and with good reason. It was associated with the now-defunct Soviet Union. The word referred particularly to individuals who tried to leave the Soviet Union, very many of them Jews attempting to immigrate to Israel, and were refused by the Soviet authorities. Their attempt to leave often gained them suspicion and harassment from the communist government. In 1977, Jewish student Yuli Yol Edelstein became one such refusenik after his denial for a visa to travel to Israel. He then began to direct underground instruction in Hebrew, which eventually earned him a politically motivated prison sentence in Siberia. Finally, in 1987, after three years in the penal colony, Edelstein was one of the last refuseniks to be released. He then went to Israel, where he had a bright political career. He served as Speaker of the Knesset, the Israeli legislative body, from 2013 until 2020. This week, he visited the Heritage Foundation and found some time to sit down with Heritage Vice President Victoria Coates to talk about his experience of October 7th and the state of the country he loves. A quick production note, we had a small technical glitch at the beginning of this interview. You'll notice that one of the microphones sounds a little off, but it resolves after about 30 seconds. Thank you for bearing with us. Enjoy the interview. Julie Edelstein, uh, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee of the Israeli Knesset. It is a great pleasure to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation and to Heritage Explains. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Well, it is an extraordinary time in which the United States and Israel find ourselves in the post-October 7th world. It is enormously challenging, but I think brings into clarity the critical nature of the U.S.-Israel alliance. And we just out of circumstances had a public event at Heritage in on October 23rd. It had been scheduled actually for April, got moved to August rescheduled to October. So I can't claim we planned it, but it happened at, a, at obviously a critical, critical moment. And the purpose of the event was to discuss the U.S.-Israel alliance at 75. And in my reflections on that event, uh, I went back to the Iron Wall, the Iron Wall, the Jabotinsky essay from actually 1923, from 100, now 100 plus years ago, and very much made it our metaphor for that event and for our policies going forward that the alliance should become the iron wall, that this is the proof, should be the proof to the enemies of Israel that Israel is not going to cease to exist because the United States won't let it. And we have to find a way to nurture our relationship going forward that is very positive and beneficial to both of us. I have no doubt that we can do that, but it will also mean bringing both the Israeli and the American people along. 
uh, and explaining to them why why this is so critical and and what our vision is. And I think from from your perspective as a legislator in Israel, you know, at the most senior levels of international affairs, you can really help our heritage members understand from an Israeli perspective that significance. So my first question for you is just what what is the mood in Israel? You know, we went through our version of this with 9-11. Uh, I think we can all remember the days after that. I was struck by what you said in our in our private meeting about about needing to get through the anger before you can start the fighting. I remember Secretary Rumsfeld telling me repeatedly about those days in September 2001, you know, everybody saying, we've got to go fight, we've got to go get them. And his, his needing to be that break, you know, we need a plan. They did not have a current plan for Afghanistan. Uh, we can't just throw people in there. You know, now we're three, four, almost four months out from the attack. What, what is the mood in Israel? I think it's a combination of uh, an obvious trauma from what happened. Uh, I don't think that uh, no one, that anyone could believe that after the Holocaust and the creation of the State of Israel, we would be witnessing atrocities of the kind we all witnessed, unfortunately, on uh, October 7. Combined with anger that you mentioned, and uh, it was, I think, a very good idea that Israeli army didn't move in didn't start the boots-on-the-ground operation immediately after October 7, but rather reshaped itself and prepared better plans. And and uh, you can only imagine that the top military uh, servicemen were also in a terrible trauma and felt, obviously, the guilt uh, about, uh, about what happened. But having said that, I think that uh, the Israelis once again showed incredible, incredible spirit. And... Uh, we are used to all kinds of political debates, and uh, it's not a secret that during last year there were lots of them in Israel, including demonstrations and protests and uh, you name it. The moment we all realized that we are being attacked by really dark forces, by probably one of the worst terror organizations in the world, there was, the estimation is about... 130% of those who answered the call for the reserve duty, meaning that around 30% of people appeared there without being called uh, to their units. And uh, the fighting spirit is incredible. And you know what? I'll say to you, first person singular, that one of the most difficult and still touching experiences that when I visit the families of the fallen soldiers to pay it, the call of condolences, uh, which is part of our Jewish tradition. And the families are so different. They may be religious and secular. They have, they may have different political views. They are from all over the country of different origin, native-born Israelis and recent immigrants, and you name it. And there was never one case that when I would get up to leave, the father, the mother, the uncle, the brother wouldn't say and just remember, if you don't want us to say that our son, brother, you name it, fell in a vein, you have to continue. You have to bring us the victory. We lost our loved ones, but you bring the victory. This is the spirit in Israel. And I would add to that what you started talking about, that it was heartwarming to see that we were not alone in the struggle and the alliance with the United States proved itself Yet again, it's not a secret that we had different approaches to different tactical issues, but I think that uh, the fact that we saw 
American ships in the area and we saw supplies coming and we heard the messages coming out of Washington to all kinds of wicked neighbors that we still have in the area that they should remember that Israel is not alone was very, very important for us. And I would even dare say that this alliance, friendship is built it's not a one-way road. I think it's important for the United States to to have an ally that might be much smaller and went, as I honestly said, through a terrible trauma on October 7. But, uh, you know, the United States can always know that in our troubled and problematic area, there is one country that will always be an ally and a partner of the United States, whatever the circumstances are. Well, and that's, I think, a, a, a critical point that I think that the point that the alliance goes both ways sometimes is lost here in, in the United States and the enormous value of Israel as a democratic ally of the United States in, in a way kind of the tip of the spear of U.S. power in the Middle East. And one of the achievements that we're proud of from the Trump administration – I know you think I'm going to say Abraham Accords, but I'm actually going to say getting Israel into CENTCOM – uh, and all that that represented in terms of integrating Israel into the United States security architecture for the region. Um, I remember when I first started looking at these issues and folks said, well, Israel's in Yukon. And I said, why? <laughs> it's not in Europe. And there were various explanations for that at the time, but but the increasing warmth between Israel and some Arab na- neighbors has permitted that that to happen. And so I think that going forward when we're out of this crisis will be a critical piece of what the Israel-America security partnership looks like over the next quarter century. And along those lines, in terms of the Arab response to both October 7th and to the war in Gaza subsequently, how do you measure that against previous uh, responses to either the Gaza war in 2014 or the Lebanon war, how how have they responded? You really put your finger in it because I, I first of all think that the two things, the two issues that you mentioned are connected, Abraham Accords and CENTCOM. Uh, you're absolutely right. It probably hadn't been possible to, to uh, transfer the responsibility to CENTCOM or whatever the proper formula would be without Abraham Accords and without the change of the atmosphere in the area and the uh, you know, I can't even start telling you. I would, I would say it in a simple way. There was never one single meeting uh, where Israeli military top brass would appear in front of my committee, committee without mentioning CENTCOM. It's, it's like mind-boggling to see how an issue that is kind of technical. Mm-hmm. You know, technical. <laughs> I, I think that 99% of the Israelis wouldn't understand right now what we are talking about. I uh, don't mean to offend anyone, but I think that among our listeners of this podcast would be many who wouldn't even uh, appreciate the, the, this kind of a change. But with chief, and, uh, chief of staff of IDF and downwards, everyone is praising this kind of change, this kind of cooperation. And now to your uh, point uh, about the atmosphere. And this is something that I think is also very visible, though there are nuances, because the obvious 
understanding would be that all the Arab countries condemn Israel for, for the war in Gaza, but it's so different from what we witnessed in previous days. And the operations were much smaller and uh, the, the, the attention to these things was much smaller. And right now, with a very serious war, and yes, you know, let's be brutally honest, there are uh, there is collateral damage too. You can't fight the terrorists, as, as we say, you know, we have to fight Hamas where they are. And Hamas are hiding behind uh, women and children and elderly. And, and still, you know, that we have statistics that are not, uh, according to some military experts, are just not possible in terms of, of, of collateral damage to, to keep it so low. And having said all that, you know, in in many Arab capitals, first of all, no one announced the uh, breaking of diplomatic relations uh, with Israel. And the condemnation is there, but it's not what what we used to hear under the circumstances. So what was true half a year ago is still true. There are Many countries in the area that understand that Israel part of the solution and not part of the problem in the Middle East. And uh, Hamas did whatever they could, unfortunately, in a very successful way. I'm saying that obviously in inverted commas to try to ruin this new atmosphere, oh, the atmosphere of Abraham Accords. But it turns out that uh, even with all the terrible atrocities and we, even with their obvious attempt to make it public to make it, you know, they were filming with GoPros, you know, everything they were doing, you know, <laughs> even as someone rightly said, it's like, as opposed to the Nazis, Nazis were trying to hide the, the atrocities here, they were, they made them public on social media, in order to try to change the atmosphere, and they didn't succeed. And the Abraham Accords hold and the, the moment will be able to get rid of Hamas, I'm absolutely sure we'll be able to broaden them. When I want to come back to that uh, point in a moment, but very quickly, before that, one of the most compelling but not terribly well-covered aspects to this here in the United States is the ongoing hostage crisis. And we know we have some number of Americans. Uh, the number we're being told is seven. I don't know if that's six. six. So so you, we, we still have Americans who obviously lost American lives on October 7th. I, I noticed that the Hamas didn't ask for anybody's passport. Uh, they, they don't care. They don't really differentiate mm-hmm. between us, which, you know, they want to make that into a liability. I think we should make it into a a strength. But how do you see the hostage situation now that Hamas rejected the most recent Israeli offer? How how might that likely play out in coming weeks? First of all, you're absolutely right. Hamas was not, was not asking for the passport or, or picture ID. By the way, uh, among the hostages, there were Arabs, Muslims from the area who were working in Israeli kibbutzim uh, or, or working at that Nova Music Festival, and they were also taken hostage. And um, it's difficult to say right now how things will develop. We had one military success releasing a female soldier uh, in the beginning of the military operation. Unfortunately, there were no successful releases via military operations. Maybe, God willing, there will be. Uh, but uh, there are countries who are that are trying to to solve the crisis. I can definitely mention the United States. It is putting the United States is not in any touch with Hamas. Don't misunderstand me. But uh, I hope they are not. Put, <laughs> yes, we all hope not. But uh, the United States, Washington is putting pressure on the 
on Egypt and on Qatar and on others who are uh, in touch with Hamas. And uh, still, you know, we are talking about here to a certain extent, we're talking about a loose cannon like uh, Hamas leadership in Gaza. We are uh, trying in every possible way to bring the hostages back because it's our obligation. We always have to remember that, you know, a person who is eight years old or or a, a one-year-old baby, we're not supposed to defend themselves when uh, when being invaded or being taken hostage. Uh, hostage. And uh, here is the obligation of the state that failed to protect them, to, to bring them back. Easy to say, much more difficult to, to do. And sometimes we hear this phrase, whatever the price, whatever the price. And even when I sit with families of the hostages, which practically happens every day, I tell them that there's no such thing, whatever the price. And what if Hamas asks to rule Tel Aviv? Will we also pay this price? I mean, there are all, all always logical limits, but uh, we are doing everything we can because it's our obligation. And uh, I hope, I hope that we will be successful. I won't go into details because I object to making details public for a number of reasons, but first and foremost because it's playing with the feelings of the families and I always try to avoid this discussion in public. No, I, I appreciate that very much. And we've, of course, endured our own extended uh, hostage ordeal in 1979, I think perhaps not coincidentally at the hands of the Islamic Republic of mm-hmm. Iran. Uh, and they clearly have taught their Hamas students well uh, how to exploit hostage taking to inflict the ultimate terror and ultimate pain, particularly on on the families. So along those lines, there has been a reluctance in some quarters in Washington to associate Iran directly with the attacks that they most recently in Politico three days ago. There was an article about how Iran really doesn't control its proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthi in, in Yemen. That's always been difficult for me to believe uh, because if absent Iranian support, train and equip financing, there's no way these guys can pull off something as spectacular as October 7th. And I'm 100 percent convinced the Houthi did not figure out how to fire a ballistic missile on the Internet, uh, nor did they manufacture that ballistic missile, we hope, in in Yemen. And, and what we're seeing now since the attack on the base in Jordan that took three American servicemen and women's lives, you know, is the United States starting to take more direct kinetic action? And they're doing it in Iraq and Syria and now in in Yemen. From an Israeli perspective, how how effective are those strikes? Is that what will necessarily deter Iran from egging its proxies on, or will it directly deter the Shia militias in in Syria and Iraq, or will it deter the the Houthi, or is something else required? Well, it's very difficult for me to talk for the Iranians because we sometimes, uh, with our quote unquote Western or European mentality try to understand or to pretend that we understand how this uh, supreme leader or any of them is thinking. But in terms of facts and figures, I think that uh, we as Israel at some stage uh, realized that the message to the Iranians should be uh, loud and clear. And uh, I sometimes call it outing to the Iranians that, you know, they can't hide behind the proxies and say, we are not involved, we don't control them, we don't know what they are doing. First of all, 
they financed them, they trained them, they supplied weapons. You're absolutely correct. It's not a stabbing in the uh, in the dark alley. It's ballistic missiles. It's most advanced we- weapons, and not just in the hands of the Houthis, but also in the hands of Hezbollah and Hamas, and you name it. There are militias in Iraq, and definitely I express my condolences to the families of the American servicemen that were that lost their lives, and uh, we know only too well what this price looks like. But I think that the United States of late also took a number of actions and uh, sent clear messages to the Iranians that neither United States nor Israel are not going to may to uh, to continue this make believe game and, and, and leave Iran outside of the picture. They will have to carry responsibility. It doesn't mean that tomorrow you know we are attacking Tehran, but it means that the message to them is and should be very clear. They either put their proxies on the leash or or they will have to deal with the consequences. And uh, having said that, I totally understand that, uh, you know, if we take Houthis, they don't necessarily take marching orders from the Iranians uh, right now, but it's because they know for a fact that the Iranians may tell them, you know, to be more accurate and not to attack certain ships, but it doesn't mean that the Iranians tell them, guys... If you don't stop, we'll cut all the relations with you. We won't support you anymore. We won't supply you with weapons or whatever. If that would be the message coming from Tehran, all of a sudden, all those who are defined today as loose cannon will become, uh, you know, Sunday school pupils very quickly. <laughs> Agreed. And then my last question for you is is about something that's happened here at home. I was I was struck by your description of of the unity in Israel after October 7th and and while I have not yet been able to be there myself that is what I hear from everybody who visits that it's that it is an extraordinary sense. Unfortunately, we had rather the opposite experience here in the United States where we have had yes, very strong and I think bipartisan and nationwide uh, it, the vast majority of Americans have responded the same way with great support for Israel. But we have revealed in the course of this a noxiously loud and attention-grabbing segment of American society, which I it cannot be denied, are anti-Semitic and pro-Hamas. And the fact that we've discovered them, and these are not the ignorant among us. They tend to be some of the most highly educated in terms of being on our academic campuses. And they are extraordinarily aggressively pro-Palestinian. And, you know, somebody who attended the University of Pennsylvania, I've been shocked by it. You know, this is not what I think of as as my alma mater. You know, we we are, as heritage, very deeply concerned by educational institutions and what, what has happened to them over the last 15 or 20 years. Is there an awareness of this in Israel? Is it something that's covered in the news? And, and, and what do people think about it? There's a lot of awareness of that, we raised this this issue with our counterparts in this country uh, during even this visit, and when people are coming to meet us in Israel. Once again, you know, I'll I'll, I'll use the same phrase. It's difficult for me even to understand this kind of mentality when uh, when you know people who look normal to you, and as you said, in some cases speak. English of of college professors uh, are well educated. On a very serious note, explain that Hamas is uh, an organization of freedom fighters, and Israel is like the new Nazis. So, uh, I mean, 
look at issues. I, I even don't want to, get, to go into all these graphic descriptions, but there was massive rape for military purposes on October 7th. I'm saying that each time and I, I shiver. And all these, you know, feminist women organizations, you know, they are silent. They are silent. Some of them spoke three or four months later when articles appeared in major newspapers with facts and evidences. But before that, nothing nothing moved them. And still, there are many organizations that are not, are not being moved. Or, you know what, I'll give you a recent example. And it's like, I don't know, funny or painful to talk about it. Yesterday, well, I don't know when this podcast will be on, but uh, this week, uh, there was the Grammy Awards ceremony. And the master of ceremonies spoke about music that unites and he mentioned different events where this music being part of the unity was broken you know he mentioned a festival in a concert in paris and a festival in las vegas and in if i'm not mistaken in in manchester england and then there was a terrible attack on the Novor super music festival that happened, I guess, on the moon or on Venus, because the word Israel was not pronounced. It's, it's taboo, you know. You can talk about atrocities committed at Nova Music Festival. You can't talk about atrocities committed in Israel. Grammy was, for God's sake. So this is something, as I've said, it's kind of on, a, on an animal level. It's, it's not something that, that you can't logically um, analyze. But, you know, I do have to praise those who said that they wouldn't take it uh, for granted that we can't change the situation. And they started talking to their alma mater, some of them being influential people, donors, you name it. And there were some results to that. And all of a sudden, the, the same universities that a day before spoke about freedom of speech and academic freedom got the message very well and changed their position and all of a sudden condemned or prohibited certain actions on the campus. So never say die. Ne- let's not raise our hands when we see this ugly anti-Semitism. No, we won't cause it to disappear from this world, but to make sure that we, we as decent people, not just Jews and not just supporters of Israel, but decent people. We give it a fight. Once again, it always starts with Jews. It never ends with Jews. So this is something we have to keep in mind. No, that's that's critically important. And one of our initiatives here at Heritage for 2024 is we actually fortunately had already launched before October 7th a major initiative on anti-Semitism, particularly in America, and are going to specifically the critical race theory, the diversity, equity, inclusion, which has such a nice name, but is such a pernicious force to that basically has been part of this effort to cast Jews along with Americans as oppressors. And so what happens to them is legitimate. And this is all just so incredibly false. It is so prevalent. But the good news is we've already started that fight. Mm-hmm. And now we are very specifically bringing it you know, to the anti-Semitism problem set. So I believe we're at, at time. I could talk to you all afternoon. Uh, Yuli, you're a new friend, but I feel like you're an old friend. And we are so honored to have you here at Heritage and hope this is the first of many visits. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, I sincerely hope that we'll have a chance to discuss different issues next time. Uh, never a dull moment in Israel, never a dull, dull moment in the world. So we'll, hi- we'll find the new topic. We'll come visit you in Jerusalem and do your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you to Victoria Coates and to Yuli Yol Edelstein for their contributions to this episode. You can find more from Victoria Coates on X at Victoria Coates, as well as at heritage.org. You can also find Yuli Yol Edelstein on X at Yuli Edelstein. Thank you, as always, to you for listening to Heritage Explains. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions, you can email us at heritageexplains at heritage.org. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Guiney, Lauren Evans, and John Pop. 